Reading this morning from Genesis chapter 3. You'll find that on page 5 of the Church Bibles. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This is the word of the Lord. A story. David Beckham goes to Harrods and asks, the shop assistant what that long silver thing was and the assistant replies a thermos flask David Beckham asks what's it used for the assistant explains David then asks if they got one in solid gold and the assistant replies that they do and David proceeds to buy it He is delighted with the purchase and goes home to show the flask to Victoria. Victoria asks what it's used for and David takes the opportunity to show off his superior knowledge and explains how it keeps cold things cold and hot things hot. Victoria is duly impressed. So what have you got in the flask, asks Victoria. Two cups of coffee and a chock ice, replies David. (laughs) That's a bit unkind, but I'm sure they'll forgive me uh, if they ever knew. Today, we're looking at two things that cannot exist ultimately together. Right and wrong, good and evil, obedience to God and disobedience to God. And we've seen the last few weeks in our opening, um, looking at Genesis 1 and 2, how in Genesis 1 we have creation and the climax of God's perfect creation are human beings. And human beings, and when you just reflect on the enormity of the universe, and we only know part of its existence, and we still haven't found anybody else who has got intelligent life. Not that there may not be, but there doesn't seem to be so far. And the whole enormity of it is just so that human beings could be created on this planet who might have a relationship with God forever. That's why he's done it. Chapter 2 is about that earthly paradise. And chapter 3 is where everything goes wrong. The fall. Well, the first thing to ask about this account, Genesis 3, is was it a historical event? Did it really happen, in other words? Sometimes you'll hear people label these chapters as myth. Well, are they correct in doing so? Well, as with answering all questions, you first of all have to define your terms. Strictly speaking, a myth is a story with no historical basis containing, though, some element of truth. 
So is Genesis 3 that? I don't think so. Not because I, my opinion is no more valid than your opinion. The important thing is to know how you go about working out what this is. And the way you do that, if it's unclear in one part of the Bible, is you scan the rest of it and see if some other part, which is clearer, might actually answer the question for you. But for starters, I'll show you how that works, but for starters, I think this is a historical event with much symbolic and figurative language. Let me explain. Adam and Eve. They are real people. The fact that they're mentioned doesn't mean that there aren't others who are also in existence at the same time who are homo sapiens, for example. And if you look genetically, the whole human race um, goes back to a common male and female origin. The human race is homogeneous, in other words. Morally, we see from uh, observation that sin is universal. Everybody is up to it. There is no paradise left on earth. And sin is universal because it was original. And then when we turn to the Bible, to the scriptures themselves, we're compelled to conclude that Adam and Eve are real historical people. The Apostle Paul, for example, thinks so. In Acts 17, 26, when he's preaching to the intelligentsia of Athens, he says, From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And then in his letter to the Christian community in Rome, chapter 5.18, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass, one sin was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And then he has it very clear and explicit in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Adam and Christ are contrasted. The first Adam disobeyed and was condemned, the second Adam, Christ, obeyed and was justified. The first Adam's punishment was death. The second Adam's reward was to be raised from the dead. Because, the first Adam's, because of the first Adam's sin, we, all subsequent human beings, now die. We are born spiritually dead. We do not have a living relationship with God as a heavenly father. And we will die physically. And we have the potential to die eternally. But because the second Adam rose from the dead, if we are in him, if our, if, if our life is, in, is united with his life, then we too can be raised to spiritual or eternal life and live with him beyond the grave. So since Christ's obedience and resurrection were historical, 
So, to make any sense, Adam's disobedience and death must also be historical. Genesis 3, therefore, is not a simple myth. It has a historic core, but some of the truth is expressed in figurative language. As I've mentioned before, talking serpents and trees of the knowledge of good and evil are elsewhere in Scripture, in Proverbs and in the book of Revelation, quite clearly symbolic. So if they are there where it's clear, it's pretty likely that they are here where it is perhaps less obvious. Well, let's get on to what happened and what we can learn from this primeval temptation. Evil was not part of God's original creation. And we see here that it comes from outside of the universe. Just as... uh, Jesus was aware when he was in debate with his fiercest opponents, John 8, 4, you belong to your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so the devil, Satan, is the origin of evil. It is thought that uh, God first of all created spiritual beings, angels, and that they were free to love and to serve him or not. But some opted not to. They rebelled. And now when God is creating human beings, Satan was out to recruit them by luring them away from God. And let's see how he went about it, because his way of working hasn't changed. So remember back in Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17, what God actually said. And then think about what Genesis 3 says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now God has given a great liberal permission here. He says you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But he has one single prohibition. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he has an explicit warning. When you eat of it, you will surely die. It will have adverse consequences of things you know not of now. And yet, Satan put a subtly seductive spin on what God had said in effect, denying the goodness of God, the holiness of God, and the otherness of God. So, through the serpent, he denies the goodness of God. He twisted the situation. He made the desirable things of God look undesirable, but the undesirable look very desirable. So God had said, you can eat of any tree bar one incredibly generous. But Satan makes it look restrictive of God. 
that one tree was off-limits. Satan goes on to imply that God's holding back on them, that he doesn't want them to eat of it, because they would be like God. But the truth was that they already were like God. They knew the difference between good and evil just like God did. They knew of it at arm's length. They knew what was right and what was wrong, just as God did, but they didn't know wrong from personal experience, just as God doesn't know wrong from personal experience. Like God, they only knew of goodness from personal experience. So God is being good to Adam and Eve by giving them just about everything to eat and by prohibiting them from just one action that will open up nothing but trouble for them. Augustine is helpful with his fourfold nature of man before and after the fall. And he taught that there are four states of humanity. And these four states, which he derived from Scripture, correspond to the four states of man in relationship to sin. So before the fall, Adam and Eve were able to sin and able not to sin. After the fall, they were not able not to sin. In Christ... We are able not to sin. Only in heaven, though, will we be unable to sin. The first state corresponds to the state of man in his time of innocence before the fall. The second, the state of natural man after the fall. The third, the state of regenerate man when he has come to be born again in Christ and has the power of Christ living within him, but only when we get to heaven are we in a glorified state where we're unable to sin. And isn't that what he's up to today? Take the use of time, for example. God gives us loads of things in this world to enjoy and to kind of express our creativity, that we, which is part of being made in the image of God. There's sports, there's music, there's drama, there's rambling and hiking and all loads and loads of things. Wonderful activities to enjoy. And God wants us to enjoy some of those. But what if they clash head on with meeting with the people of God? Which we're told to do. Sunday morning, Sunday evening or some other time of the week. Well, of course, if there is a clash, we would try to work round it. And in fact, as a church, some Sundays we offer five services and six opportunities to meet other Christians between 8am and 9.30pm. And if you're on a 13-hour shift on a Sunday, we have other opportunities on weekdays. But if we opt for, for example, the Sunday morning alternative over gathering with fellow believers on a Sunday morning and don't meet Christians at other times, what does that say about our priorities? Because how we use our time is indicative of those priorities over what we think, for example, is important. 
you know, how different things rank amongst our priorities. It doesn't so matter when you meet, it's just that as Christians we do need to meet. And the same could be said of money. Money is, is a useful, wealth creation is a good thing. It's using our talents to the full, it's providing for others in direct and indirect ways. It's the love of money which is a root of evil. It's where you kind of up its importance relative to the eternal things. So, when it kind of boils down to it sometimes, you may have seen a little um, promo that came out this week for Madness and Mayhem camps. If, for example, in your family, you were really sort of strapped for cash and you uh, were faced with, it's either going to be an M&M camp for my child or a school trip for my child. Now, school trips can be great fun and to expand horizons. But an M&M camp can be the time when, for them, the penny drops, the light bulb illuminates, and our child realises that they are being called by Christ into a relationship with him. How we use our money reflects our priorities. God is good. He tells us how we should live if we want to enjoy a good life, the life he intended for us. Satan is in the business of making the forbidden path look attractive, even though it will turn out to be immensely destructive. Next, we see how Satan denies the holiness of God. He directly contradicts God's warning of judgment. God had said in Genesis 2.17, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And in Genesis 3, what does the serpent say to the woman? Did God say? And then he says, you will not surely die. We've had doubt, and then we have denial. And who did Eve believe? Well, sadly, the serpent. She believed Satan's lie. You won't die, but she did die. Now, I suppose human beings, had they not fallen, would have either, like, like um, Enoch and Elijah, been beamed up to heaven, or more likely, heaven, paradise, would have stayed on earth, and God and man would have lived forever like that. But they swallowed the lie. Again, today, there are plenty of people who first doubt and then deny that God, for example, is a God of judgment, and that at the end of time, he is going to hold a grand court, and all who've ever lived will have to give an account of themselves, and then eternal destinies are fixed. And it's easy to see how people can doubt, and it's very sad to think that God is going to say, as Jesus said to some in his own lifetime, depart from me, I never knew you, 
depart into outer darkness forever. It's not a nice thought at all. Surely we think it's going to work out all right in the end, that we'll all be all right. But think, if God wants people to love him, he's not able to force them to love him because love to be love has to be freely given. It is voluntary. So love God now, obey him now, and on that day he will see, welcome, good and faithful servant, welcome into my kingdom prepared for you. But what should God do for people who don't want anything to do with him? It may be they don't want to have anything to do with any God, or it may be they don't want to have anything to do with the revealed God, the God of Scripture. They prefer to live in a fantasy, their own reconstructed God, their domesticated God, the one they like because, of course, he's made in their image and he shares their views. But, of course, he's not the real God. The real one they don't like. They may call him Jesus even. But he's a different one from the one who existed and is recorded in the Gospels. What does God do with those who are either up front in their rejection of him or who prefer their own reconstructed God? Well, I think we'd all think it pretty off of God if he made them all join him in heaven. When he's given them the choice and they've chosen the alternative. Sadly, but justly, God gives people what they choose, even if that means eternity without him. I don't see that he can do anything else. And it's not as if he hasn't warned us, both in scripture and through our consciences. Well, look at the issue from another angle. What would would it be like to live in a world where the most appallingly evil acts can take place with impunity? As long as you're powerful enough, you can get away with with murder and no one can touch you. Can you imagine such a place? It would be awful. Fortunately, such a world does not exist. God is calling us all at the end to give an account of our life. No one who's ever lived will escape his justice. And those who have suffered unjustly will see themselves vindicated and will see justice done. So Satan has so far doubted the goodness of God and denied the holiness of God and then now finally he rejects the otherness of God. Satan entices Eve to rebel against her creatureliness. You will be like God, says the serpent. That's why he doesn't want you eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He wants to keep you in your place. He wants to keep you down. Eat it, though, and you'll be like him. Well, Adam and Eve were already like him. They were made in his image. They were like him as far as uh, he would allow. 
They were not like God in that they were dependent. Whereas God, of course, is not dependent on anyone, but we are dependent on him. To try and be independent of God was not what God had in mind. Indeed, it's a delusion to think that uh, we could be independent of him. God allows us in this life to be spiritually detached. But it only takes a natural disaster like a hurricane, an earthquake, a flood on a grand scale or an illness or a loss on the personal level to realise just how vulnerable we are. Some of you who have been members for about three decades at St Mary's will remember Graham and Liz Walker before they retired to the Cayman Islands, which you might imagine is a foretaste of heaven before you get the real thing. But then, in 2004, Hurricane Ivan visited the island and hit it so hard that they described their experience in an email as 36 hours of hell, a reminder of our dependent status. So Satan's temptation is to refuse to recognise God's otherness and to claim a God-likeness that is not ours to have. We were made to be dependent on God. We delude ourselves if we think we can be completely autonomous beings capable of being in charge of our own destiny. And what this story boils down to is essentially a temptation where there is a battle, a war of words. God's word and Satan's word. In this battle we've seen that the word of God was subtracted from by Satan. You will not die. A flat contradiction. It was added to by Eve. Did you notice that uh, God only said you mustn't eat of it? But she adds, he said you mustn't touch it. Well, he didn't say that. And then, of course, we see how it is twisted by the devil. You will be like God when they already were in the way God wanted them to be like him. And we also see how the devil operates. First he goes for the mind. Did God really say? Introducing doubt, which can so easily morph into fuzzy thinking. Then he goes to the heart, desirable for gaining wisdom. A right desire. But some things are not for now. They are for the next life, for heaven. And finally, an act of the will. She ate it. So the devil has revealed for us his modus operandi, his way of working. And we should be aware of that, as we are aware when he starts to work on us. So we are left in reading this thinking there are just two ways to live. There is the way of sin 
The essence of sin is a revolt against God and his word. It's a denial of his goodness, holiness and otherness. It's a refusal to accept his authority and to recognize our creaturely dependence. It's doing our own thing and it will do us no good. And he wants to prevent us from that. And then there is his way, the way of victory. It is wising up and in submitting to the word of God. And when we're tempted, then like Jesus who was tempted in the wilderness, his way of uh, countering the devil was saying simply, well, what does scripture say? What is written? That will determine what I'm to do and how I'm to act. Let's pray. We thank you that this is given for our uh, understanding and for uh, living a wise life. And we see how things went wrong and have subsequently gone wrong. And we'll see next time, even in Genesis 3, how God is already working out his rescue plan so that we who are born estranged from him can come to be his friends and to express our dependence on him, our love for him, and our appreciation that his ways are the wise ways. His ways are the way that uh, brings us fulfillment in life, living life as it's meant to be. And may we be forever aware of the alternative. Amen.